Cheers to the new year from our friends at Manscaped, because your resolutions shouldn't be the only things that are well kept. 2024 is the time for new heights, new opportunities, and a new look for your Times Square balls. Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra is every man's cheat code to look good, feel good, and turn the page on confidence this year. Whether you're looking to maintain a trim or go for that clean-shaven look, this trimmer has you covered. Trusted by over 10 million men worldwide, now is your time to get a grip on your grooming with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code HUDDYHISTORIAN for 20% off plus free shipping. Happy New Year, or happy new balls? Now look, I know that feeling confident and improving my self-esteem are two of my biggest goals in this new year, and looking good with the help of Manscaped helps me do just that. With baby number one on the way, I don't want to look like one of those disheveled and beaten down dads taking their kids to school every morning. I want to look sharp, refreshed, and ready to take on the day. And Manscaped's Performance Package 5.0 Ultra has helped me do that every day now in 2024. And speaking of 2024, introducing the year's MVP. Manscaped's fifth-generation lawnmower, it's not just a trimmer, it's your grooming sidekick. Equipped with two skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. It's like having a personal stylist at your fingertips, or, well, wherever you need it. And did we mention it's waterproof? Because the trim in the shower is the only way to start the day. And for men who want the full grooming experience, look no further than Manscaped's Performance Package 5.0. In this grooming kit, you get the trusted lawnmower, Manscaped's ear and nose hair trimmer, and essential aftercare products with the Crop Soother Ball Aftershave Lotion and Crop Preserver Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant. Yeah, it's deodorant for your balls. Bet you didn't think you needed that. But as a gesture for the new year, they even threw in two free gifts. The Boxers 2.0 and the Shed 2.0 toiletry bag. Because they know good and well you're still rocking your boxes from high school. And let's face it, resolutions might come and go, but a well-groomed you is here to stay, thanks to Manscaped. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code HuddyHistorian at Manscaped.com. That's H-U-D-D-Y-H-I-S-T-O-R-I-A-N because nothing says Happy New Year like a deal that leaves your balls and your budget feeling refreshed. Embrace a new you and definitely embrace a new trimmer, courtesy of Manscaped. Episode 39, Alow. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all enjoyed a lovely Christmas and New Year's season, as well as our supplemental from two weeks ago on Marshall Louis Nicolas Davout, who will be a central figure in today's episode, which will be the penultimate on the War of the Fourth Coalition. And yes, I do know that at the end of episode 38, I was hoping to have this out before Christmas, which obviously was about four weeks ago, as well as to wrap up the entire War of the Fourth Coalition. But with my wife and I hosting numerous people here during the holidays, it was difficult to put out an episode that I wanted in such a rushed time frame, and I don't think that my listeners deserve that. And so, with the extra time, I'm hoping that today's longer episode will help make up for the delay I had in putting out this episode, and we will for sure conclude the War of the Fourth Coalition and discuss its aftermath in our next episode. It's a minor adjustment, as I was going to discuss the aftermath in the subsequent episode anyway, so it's not going to change the overall schedule of the series, 
but I did want to preface today's episode with that in case there was any confusion. Now, with all that out of the way, let's pick up from where we left off in our last episode, which was talking about Napoleon's announcement of the Continental System. Now, as I mentioned, I am going to devote our next supplemental into doing a deeper dive into the Continental System, specifically regarding its effect on the countries involved, especially France, and how it was, well, basically doomed from the start. But I'd be remiss to say that its implementation was a seminal moment in not only the age of economic warfare, but in the grand scheme of the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, think of all the reactions that came as a result from it. One will be happening in less than a year with the invasion of Portugal as a result of their refusal to not trade with their longtime ally in Great Britain, which led to the eventual Greater Peninsula War, which in turn proved devastating for Napoleon in terms of manpower and resources that were badly needed elsewhere. In addition, smuggling was far too profitable to simply abide by the system, and, well, to the contrary, it only drove up the prices of many of the goods being illicitly traded, and thus made smugglers incredibly rich. But perhaps most importantly, it drove a wedge between France and her uh, allies, as they lost a huge market share with which to trade with and to profit from, and considering many of these countries were being devastated by wars over the previous two decades, money was something that was badly needed around the continent. And this is to say nothing of the fact that Russia's growing frustration with the system would eventually lead to Napoleon's ill-fated invasion of Russia, and well, we all know how that ended, but we'll certainly go into further detail on it later this year. Nevertheless, the fact remained that many of the subjugated nations were unable to really question Napoleon's orders. He had thoroughly punished the continent for their unprovoked wars against France, and Prussia, despite having been thoroughly outclassed over the previous four months, was still unwilling to surrender, knowing that the Russians were still their ace in the hole to save the campaign. And so, with the winter approaching at the end of 1806, we're going to go back to Napoleon and his Grande Armée as they are set to enter Poland. Napoleon entered into Polish territory at the end of November, and was greeted with great fanfare amongst the population, many of whom were hoping that Napoleon's arrival wouldn't mean their liberation from both Russian and Prussian influence and the re-establishment of a new Polish state. Now, Napoleon, as we had mentioned, was keen to have the Polish as a French ally, knowing that their fervent nationalism was something that played well into the French intentions in the region. The largely Catholic and Jewish population loathed the yoke of the Protestant Prussians and the Orthodox Russians ever since the first partition of Poland back in 1772, some 35 years earlier. Many of the older generations of Poles saw their country split amongst the great powers of Central Europe as young adults, and they instilled in their children, particularly their sons, the anger that they felt at the betrayal of their final king, Stanislaw August Poniatowski, for basically surrendering their sovereignty without so much as a whimper to Prussia, Austria, and Russia. Now, with Napoleon's arrival and his thorough humiliation of the Prussian army over the fall, they saw in him a savior for their long-held dream of liberation and independence. Napoleon, though, in trademark fashion, was far more reticent with his intentions for the region. Again, he obviously wanted Polish support in the fight against his enemies, particularly Russia, but he was keen not to display himself as some sort of liberator of the Polish people or founder of a new Poland. Because he saw the bigger picture, i.e. having Russia as an ally and buffer amongst the other great powers. And doing something as cavalier as creating a new Poland was something that would greatly throw that possibility right out the window. Instead, he needed to defeat Russia before any talks of alliance could take place, and having the Poles on his side for that fight was of the utmost importance to him. 
Now, speaking of the Russians, to this point in the War of the Fourth Coalition, they've been nothing more than sideline players. And with the news of the Prussian defeat, the Russians began to retreat further along into the interior, allowing for the French to essentially walk into Poland without so much as a single cannon being fired. Many of the Russian units were commanded by Field Marshal Mikhail Kamensky, but he, like many of his Prussian counterparts, was old and didn't want to confront a confident and battle-tested Grand Armée in a pitched battle. So, he continued to retreat northeast, leaving command to the new Russian field commander, Hanoverian-born General Levin August von Benningsen. Now, once news of the French arrival into Poland reached Benningsen, he began to pull his troops out of Warsaw and retreated further north to await reinforcements. This meant that the Polish capital was left unguarded, and Marshal Murat entered the city proper on November 26th and declared himself the military governor. Now, many of Napoleon's troops were happy to be in the city, especially with the notorious Eastern European winter approaching, but when Napoleon announced a continuation of the campaign throughout the winter, their moods turned sour. Believing that their defeat of Prussia had essentially ended the war, they were furious to find out that their mission was not accomplished and that they set up camp on the Vistula River, knowing that the coming months would be long and the fighting brutal. Now, as we've seen over the previous two years in the current Ukrainian-Russian war, winter conditions in Eastern Europe are less than ideal for fighting a major offensive, with freezing weather and mud halting advances dead in their tracks, even with modern weaponry. Nevertheless, Napoleon continued to endear himself to the troops, engaging them in friendly banter and allowing them to air their grievances, as he too was to share in their discomfort. Still, Napoleon did have to concede in getting his men new supplies and clothing to address the lack of discipline they were beginning to show. But even with all this going on, Napoleon, as he was accustomed to do, found time to entertain himself with the local nobility and attended lavish ceremonies with the high society of Warsaw, parting long into the night and enjoying the company of the local women, something which Josephine, who was invited to join him in Poland, found annoying, but hey, again, he was nothing if not a hypocrite, right? Now, soon to be joining the Polish nobility was a former enemy of Napoleon, but now turned into an ally, and that was Frederick Augustus of Saxony. Now, if you remember back to the Jena campaign, Saxony was an ally of Prussia, but after their defeat at Jena and Auerstedt, Napoleon essentially moved his troops in for a full occupation of the principality. Faced with being deposed, Frederick Augustus decided to join Napoleon's Confederation of the Rhine and sign the Treaty of Poznan on December 11, 1806, which elevated him from Elector of Saxony to King of Saxony, a concession which Napoleon was happy to make in further crippling the Prussian influence in Germany. Less than a year later, Frederick Augustus would be made the Duke of Warsaw after the Treaty of Tilsit, essentially giving him the title of ruler of both Saxony and Poland, which had been a lifelong goal of his. We'll come back to Tilsit in our next episode, but with 1807 nearing and the war about to become hot again, Napoleon pulling off this stunning robbery of one of Frederick William's closest allies was a critical blow to the Greater Fourth Coalition. In any event, as Christmas approached, Napoleon began to ready his men for campaign, as he'd assumed that the Russians would settle in for their winter quarters, and he could then ambush them and further separate the two main contingents of the army under Benningsen and our old friend General Buxhauden. On the morning of December 23rd, Napoleon observed the Russian positions near the Vakra River as it emptied into the nearby Bug Nauru, forming a fork in a swampy marsh. Marshal Davout, who was camped nearby with three infantry divisions, was ordered to attack the Russians under the command of Lieutenant General Alexander Ivanovich Osterman Toltsoy that evening in a surprise attack. One of Davout's infantry commanders, General Charles-Antoine Moron, led the initial assault across the river at 7 p.m., 
surprising the Russians, and then ran them off on the east bank of the river. Following this, there was a back-and-forth struggle for the nearby town of Charnowo, with the French eventually taking it by midnight after Tolstoy moved his artillery behind the front lines in fear that he would lose the guns over an area that, well, in the grand scheme of the campaign, was not of huge strategic significance. Davout's left then further cleared the Russian infantry from the west bank, and by the early morning of December 24th, Tolstoy had ordered a full retreat, though they were spared capture thanks to a late-arriving Russian reinforcement force, allowing them to move safely to the east to fight on. Now, the losses on both sides have been disputed, though they are largely seen as similar in total number, but the French suffered a particularly high casualty rate amongst their officer corps. Nevertheless, they won the day, and coupled with the nearby engagements at Bunzen and Soldau, the French were able to control the main waterways leading into and around Warsaw from Russian interference. However, that did not mean they had defeated the Russians, and intense fighting would continue in the coming days. On December 24th, Napoleon ordered all of his marshals in the area to continue their pursuit of the Russian retreat, namely Davout, Lens, Sault, Augereau, and Murat. But the winter conditions were beginning to take their toll, and the Grande Armée, famed for its speed, was now being slowed to only a few miles a day thanks to the muddy terrain, and, with this in mind, the Russians wanted to concentrate their forces and utilize the weather in their sheer numbers to their advantage by taking out a staggering French advance. Because... While the Russians were also retreating, the weather hindered their attempts to move further east, and with the French still on their heels, the numerical advantage that they enjoyed, they figured, would be enough to halt the French thrust and allow for their orderly retreat east until the spring campaign. So, on Christmas Day, 1806, Russian General Benningsen disobeyed orders and halted the retreat to face the French. With Marshal Jean Law and his two infantry divisions ordered by Napoleon to cut off any further retreat by Benningsen, the two sides would meet near the town of Poltotsk, northeast of Warsaw on the west bank of the Nauru River. Murat, Davout, and Ajaro were then ordered further north to meet Russian General Dmitry Golitsyn's forces at the village of Golimin, and the day after Christmas, the twin battles of Poltotsk and Golimin would take place. We'll deal with Poltotsk first, as it was Lon's forces who would first see fighting. Now, in terms of total strength, the Russians outnumbered the French at close to 2-1, to one, and Benningsen decided to spread his forces out across the plain in order to better withstand any initial assault by the French, as well as to prevent them from crossing the Nauru, as Napoleon had instructed Lon to do. In front of the first Russian line was a large Cossack cavalry, tasked with hopefully bogging down the French in the muddy terrain while the artillery was moved up to the front. When Lon's corps made contact with the Russians just after 10 a.m., it was the Cossacks who we encountered first, easily pushing them back into the Russian line. However, due to the terrain, Lon was unable to see the true size of the Russian army, and as they advanced further and further up the Russian center, they became more exposed to reserve cavalry units and artillery that were previously out of sight. Despite forcing the Russians back into their original positions, which in and of itself was a considerable feat given the tenuous position Lon put his troops in, by the early afternoon, the French were in serious danger of being completely routed. Not helping the situation was that a blizzard broke out in the middle of the battle, further making coordination and scouting the enemy positions difficult. With Lon nearly ready to order a retreat, reinforcements arrived, seemingly by accident. Marshal Davout's chief of staff, General Joseph Augustin Fournier, was ordered to pursue a separate Russian column that was planning to retire at Poltutsk. But Fournier, hearing the gunfire from the battlefield, decided to assist Lon. When Benningsen noticed Fournier's forces approaching, he had to reposition his cavalry towards the woods on the Russian right, 
Now, while this did quell Fortnier's assault, it critically meant that there was less artillery fire being rained down on Lawn's center, and they were able to regroup and, forming squares, began to steadily push the cavalry out. It also meant that the French right flank, which was the Russian left, was now facing fewer guns, and with more attention being paid to the Russian right, they organized a fresh attack just after 3 p.m. Still, the Russian numbers proved more than able to withstand the French assault, and as night fell, Napoleon was unable to achieve the decisive victory he'd hoped for. Benningsen would retire for the evening, and moved his troops the next day to Australaka, further to the northeast on the right bank of the Nauru. Benningsen would claim the battle of victory, though given his superior manpower and the opportunity he had to completely crush Lon's corps, one can hardly view it as such. It is odd, too, that in disobeying his orders to continue the retreat and face the French, that he did so by choosing a defensive battle instead of inflicting a devastating blow on Napoleon's forces. Nevertheless, both sides likely suffered heavy casualties, and no one number has been agreed to, but it's probable each side lost well in excess of 3,000 men, given the heavy concentration of artillery fire and defensive positions made by the Russian forces. Regardless of the exact number, both sides were exhausted, and Long's men would not fight another campaign until the following month. But Benningsen's army was able to pull out successfully, and Marshals Murat, Ajaro, and Davou would make sure that they would soon be joined by Galitsyn's men. And so as we do, let's back up to earlier in the day, on December 26th. Now on that morning, Galitsyn's men arrived near the village of Galimin, exhausted from the prolonged retreat, and were hoping to be joined by nearby reinforcements to continue their march. Numbering around 20,000 men, Galitsyn's forces were well positioned to repel a French assault, but their low morale, combined with brutal terrain and weather, hindered much of the initiative. Not that the French were any better off, but they were hardly on their heels. And indeed, at around 10 a.m., Murat's cavalry advance guard made first contact, and Galitsyn's rearguard, consisting of two squadrons of cavalry as well, repelled the assault and pushed the French back into the nearby woods. A few hours later, Ajarot and Murat arrived with their main corps, forcing Galitsyn to abandon his retreat and stand a fight, and a bitter struggle ensued for the next few hours around the town. Davout's light cavalry then arrived and helped drive the Russians into the woods, but they were unable to completely encircle them as the terrain, still muddy from the recent rains, made it unsuitable for horses and artillery. Now, while Davout's 1st Division under General Charles-Antoine Morin arrived in time to help drive the Russians back, they were soon forced into a marshland that halted the advance as Russian soldiers retreated across in frigid, waist-deep water. Now, Morin decided to abandon the pursuit having already taken the woods and not wanting to suffer additional casualties and needlessly losing any heavy artillery. And so as night fell, Galitsyn's men began their orderly withdrawal from the town, and they were able to successfully continue their retreat to the northeast. The French, having captured the town, were technically victorious, but Napoleon once again did not achieve the decisive victory he had longed for, and now, faced with starving, exhausted, and relentless soldiers, finally relented and decided to settle in for a bitterly cold winter on December 28th. Over the following weeks, the French camped just outside of Warsaw on the Bastula. Their supply situation was in dire need of attention. The roads were miserable, and the terrain was made even worse by the constant fighting in such a relatively small area. Many of the French soldiers were at their breaking point, and Napoleon faced desertion, suicides, and disease. Not even Napoleon trying to empathize and relate to his troops could prevent these losses, especially since Napoleon could just stroll into Warsaw for more banquets and, well, female accompaniment, which he did regularly, whenever he pleased. 
Napoleon even sent letters to Josephine telling her to return to France due to the sour state of the roads and the terrain, but in reality, it was because he had taken a mistress and did not want her to catch him in the act of infidelity. Again, Napoleon was nothing if not a hypocrite. Now, the French spent the better part of the next month trying to improve their supply situation. From importing more clothes for the soldiers to ensuring a steady supply of food and medical supplies for the wounded, of which there were many. But Napoleon, who was frustrated both at the logistic situation and the strategic initiative of the campaign, used much of January to interrogate the prisoners of war that the French had captured to better understand the Russian strategy as well as their subsequent moves. Napoleon didn't want to wait around until the spring to make the next assault, knowing that doing so would allow the Swedes and the Prussians to get back into the fold at full force, and with the French stretched pretty thin as it was, he knew that the lull in action needed to be short if he wanted to end the war on his own terms. Now the Russians, meanwhile, were hoping to end the war on theirs. In early January, Bennington and Buxhout met and decided on an offensive to drive the French back to the west bank of the Vistula. The plan consisted of the Russians moving to northern East Prussia, turning west, and then enveloping Napoleon's left flank. They had hoped to keep a division north of Warsaw to distract Napoleon's troops while the main assault would commence, catching the French by surprise and then forcing them to retreat southwest. The Russian goal was to use their newly gained positions to then launch a second spring offensive, once the frost had thawed, to push the French further west past the Oder River. However, the internal rivalry between Benningsen and Buxhauden meant that they had competing interests, and Benningsen withdrew eastward and, to his delight, was made the overall commander of the Russian army, with Buxhauden being recalled by Tsar Alexander. Benningsen then deployed his divisions across the east as they prepared for their descent on the Polish capital. But in an incredible stroke of luck, Napoleon would soon learn of the Russian plan thanks to a simple act of disobedience. Marshal Ney, whose troops were with little food and left starving in the bitter Polish winter, moved north to Königsberg, modern-day Kaliningrad, against Napoleon's orders. Encountering a Prussian force on January 11th, which they were able to repulse, Ney learned from some of the captured prisoners that the Russians were planning a large-scale winter offensive, and when Napoleon, who was still livid at Ney for his insubordination, but soon put these emotions aside, learned of the attack, he began to plan one of his own. He ordered Ajarot to ready his 7th Corps and move them to the right bank of the Vistula, while he then ordered Marshal François-Joseph Lefebvre and his 10th Corps to protect Thorn north of Warsaw. Now, Lefebvre has been a relatively minor player to this point, and we haven't even mentioned him save for his introduction as one of the original 18 marshals, but he would soon receive critical orders to begin a siege of Danzig and capture the city, beginning a two-month-long battle which would ultimately be successful, culminating with the city's capitulation in May, but we will touch more on that situation in our next episode. Anyway, Napoleon then ordered Bernadotte to screen the nearby Passage River, and he then swung his whole army north to concentrate his main force at Thorn. On January 19th, the Russian advance commenced as they began to appear from the nearby forests, engaging Ney's troops from Schipenbiel, which is modern-day Sipapol in Poland, and combined with their Prussian counterparts, the coalition forces numbered some 75,000 men, though they were spread out over a vast area. Napoleon's men were equally spread out, and the weather further hampered both advances, with a combination of mud and then snow hindering any forward movements by the cavalry and artillery. Ney, despite suffering heavy casualties, managed to escape south, but the Russians now had the clear initiative, and they then began to move towards Bernadotte's position. The Russian advance guard, led by General Yevgeny Markov, would descend on the northern town of Morogan, where Bernadotte was concentrating his forces, and it was here where the next major engagement of the campaign took place. 
Once Bernadotte got word of Markov's advance, he marched north to meet him, ordering General Division Pierre Dupont to march south and attack the Russian right. With Dupont's arrival, the French numbered around 12,000 men, while Markov commanded a force of some 16,000. By the early afternoon, Bernadotte ordered the attack to begin, sending the cavalry forward only for them to be driven back by the Russian hussars, who themselves were then pushed back by heavy French artillery. Now, this back and forth continued for the first hour or so, but the French were successful in driving them out of the nearby villages. As Dupont's advance neared the Russian right, Markov was forced to deploy additional battalions to shore up the flank, allowing for Bernadotte to concentrate on the center. The Russians resisted fiercely, but the French were successful in repelling the Russian advance. Bernadotte had intended to continue the pursuit, but he suddenly heard gunfire at his rear in Mulrogan. Bernadotte then called off the pursuit and ordered his men to return to the village, where they found Russian cavalry raiding the town and French baggage trains. Once Bernadotte arrived, they took off, but not without quibbling the French supply situation, which again was already in dire need. The French inflicted some 1,500 casualties on the Russian army while suffering some 1,000 of their own, but they were unable, again, to achieve the decisive victory they were looking for. Bernadotte would abandon the town the next day, and the Russians would soon move to occupy it. Eventually concentrating their forces around Mulrogan, the Russians began to rest and resupply, believing that they were now the ones with the clear initiative, and then Napoleon was on the verge of retreat. But they would soon find out that they were indeed mistaken. Because, you see, Bernadotte's retreat was exactly what Napoleon was hoping for. He wanted to continue the pull of Russians westward, further extending them out from their main base, before being able to launch his big blow. But unbeknownst to Napoleon, one of Bernadotte's aides-de-camp had been captured on the retreat, and Napoleon's war plans had then been made known to Bennington. It was a big ol' intelligence tit-for-tat January 1807, folks. Now, the message captured by the Russian advance guard led by General Bagration, gave the entire dispositions of the French, and it became readily apparent to the Russians that they were walking right into a trap. Napoleon, again completely oblivious to the fact that his plans had been compromised, was stunned to find out that the Russians were again retreating eastwards towards the River Ale, rather than advancing westward, which is what he had expected. He then went on a northeast offensive, but the weather continued to slow the French movements, which infuriated Napoleon and his soldiers, who were none too pleased to be moving further and further into the Polish interior during the coldest part of the year. Now, if all of these movements and repositioning of troops seem complicated, well, welcome to 19th century warfare. War, in general, is a constantly shifting strategy that relies on so many variables, and as well as actions and reactions to the enemy. So while it may seem confusing as to why all these armies are attacking, retreating, going back on the offensive only to change course again, well, that's because war is totally unpredictable. Napoleon, however, wanted something very simple, a decisive victory to end this war. Bennington now being aware of Napoleon's plan, however, put that ambition in doubt. The Russians did begin the retreat east, but Napoleon was certain that they would eventually relent and stand a fight. They just couldn't keep marching and marching east, could they? They nearly got their chances after skirmishes at Alestine and Hoff, in which the French came out victorious, but they were unable to engage Benningsen directly, losing their chances at the decisive battle. But Benningsen was getting dangerously close to backing himself into a wall, as he moved closer and closer to Konigsberg, something which would have severely hampered his route of escape, and the French were beginning to close in on all corners, and he would eventually have his armies back to the Baltic Sea. 
Given the state of the roads and the weather, Napoleon's armies were far more spread out than usual, making the overall coordination for a direct assault difficult, and Napoleon would need to wait for many of his best marshals to arrive, including Ney and Davout, who were moving up with 30,000 men to join Napoleon's main force of 45,000 men along with some 220 guns. Benningson, meanwhile, well, he was done running. He decided to concentrate his forces of nearly 80,000 men, of which 10,000 were Prussians under the command of General Antoine Wilhelm von Lestock, who was further away to the east, as well as 400 guns at a nearby town called Bagrestinovsk, at the time better known as Eilau. And on the 7th of 8th of February 1807, it would be the scene of one of the bloodiest battles of the Napoleonic Wars. Early in the afternoon of February 7th, the first French troops arrived on the entrenched Russian positions right outside of Eilau. Marshal Soult's 4th Corps and Murat's cavalry approached on the main road leading into the city, encountering the Russian vanguard under General Michael Andrea Barclay de Tolly, positioned in front of the city with heavy artillery, along with infantry in ditches and barricades. Coming out of the woods in order to march in the city, these first units faced intense, concentrated fire from de Tolly's troops. The plateau in front of the town was commanded by Russian General Bagration, and Napoleon ordered his troops to assault these positions, while Bagration was instructed to hold his ground at any cost to allow for more Russian guns to come to the front. Soult sent two lines of infantry to essentially charge headlong at the Russians, but they were unsupported and were quickly mauled by the cannon fire and then charged at by Russian soldiers running across the nearby frozen lake Techniken. While French dragoons came in at the nick of time to prevent a complete destruction of Soult's line, the carnage was severe, and by the early evening, Napoleon himself could see a sea of bodies lining the foot of the plateau entering into the city. Still, the French held, and they began to advance on the town. Now, there was much disagreement as to why Napoleon ordered the advance, especially since, as we're about to see, it led to unimaginable suffering for the soldiers and citizens alike. But given how chaotic the battle was, it is possible it was an order that could have been misconstrued or the situation misread by Napoleon himself. Whatever the case, as night began to fall, the true horror of the battlefield was beginning to make itself known. As this advance was happening, a French division led by General Louis-Vincent Saint-Hilaire on the French right moved to engage the Russians at the town's cemetery and church, which had a high ground making it a strategically important position. Bitter fighting ensued here as well, and images of the Battle of Eilau had been recreated to remember this particular scene, with fierce bayonet battles in between headstones of the town's deceased. Now, the French were initially successful in taking the cemetery, but the Russians would order a counterattack, and General Barclay de Tolly was wounded trying to retake it by another Napoleonic whiff of grape shot, and he would soon be out of commission for over a year. All the while, tens of thousands of more troops on both sides were being sucked into the battle, as the French began to create a salient heading into Eilau proper. As the night fell, the streets ran red with blood as vicious urban warfare took over. The French would eventually gain control of most of Eilau, and General Bagration had wanted to order a full retreat from the town to regroup, but Benningsen was determined to have it settled here, and he ordered the Russians to counterattack. Napoleon hated fighting at night, but his men had forced his hand, and the struggle continued almost until midnight. Eventually, Benningson relented and called his troops to the east of the city, where they would sleep out in the open without fire so as not to alert the French to their positions. The French would do the same, though not after marauding the town for vital food and supplies. 
As the soldiers on both sides finally retired to their frozen sleeping quarters, the pure savagery of the first day of the battle became known to all. Each side suffered around 4,000 casualties in only an afternoon and evening of fighting, and with temperatures dropping rapidly throughout the night, many of the wounded would soon be among the deceased. Napoleon, shaken by the utter brutality of the fighting and relatively little gain it achieved, was also worried that Benningson would just continue on with his retreat. That, at that moment, all of those men had died in the bitter cold for nothing other than moving further and further away from their supply train, which was now almost non-existent. As one of his captains recalled, quote, Tears welled in the emperor's eyes. Nobody would have believed possible such an emotion from this great man of war. However, I saw them myself, these tears. The emperor was doing his best to prevent his horse from stepping on human remains. Being unsuccessful, it's then that I saw him crying. The reality was laid bare. He needed to win this battle here and now. But the same was also true for Benningson. And he would not retreat this time. As dawn broke on February 8th, the two sides would stand to fight it out again. The next morning, Napoleon, who slept very little that night and in full dress, went to the cemetery knoll to gain a better view of the Russian positions, now a few miles northeast of Eilau. Gazing through his telescope, he had to have done a double take when he saw the sheer size and arrangement of the Russian army. Nearly 70,000 men, in two long lines stretching for over three miles, flanked on either side by the villages of Schlauden to the north and Schapalen to the south, both of which were heavily fortified to attack the French flanks. Napoleon led with Ajaro and Soule's corps, still reeling from the day before, by the way, while he held the Imperial Guard and Murat's cavalry in reserve. Napoleon knew that with Davout's Third Corps arrival at any moment, they would gain a decisive advantage as Davout was coming up from the south and was to attack the Russian left, freeing up the center and to allow for Napoleon's attack on it. But the Russians were done playing games, and as quickly as the sun shone in the blood-stained battlefield, Benningsen lined up his nearly 400 guns, a considerable amount of artillery for a single battle, by the way, and began a rain of hellfire on the French lines before their soldiers were even in position. With many soldiers needing to go through the town of Eilau itself, the numerous streets and alleyways created choke points, leading to packed and chaotic scenes with French soldiers confused as to which direction to march forward. Benningson concentrated many of his cannons on the town, and canister shot ripped through buildings, with rubble falling on many of the men as they tried to get their bearings. Meanwhile, Napoleon ordered his artillery to return fire, and the cannons flanking Eilau answered the Russian bombardment in kind. With nearly 600 guns combined, the Battle of Eilau was the largest artillery battle in history to that time, and both sides exchanged cannon fire for the next three hours almost uninterrupted. Both sides suffered immense casualties as a result. The French due to the sheer number of Russian guns, the Russians due to the experience of the French gunners, and the fact that the Russian numbers were so concentrated they were almost impossible to miss. It was carnage on an unprecedented scale. Now at this point, Napoleon knew that he had a fight on his hands, but he was somewhat relieved because he knew that Benningson was here to fight it out and not to retreat. His men, however, felt no such relief, and the day would only bring on more and more suffering. Throughout the morning and the afternoon, snow fell at a consistent rate and made visibility difficult, save for the patches of blood littering the white ground, almost turning the battlefield of Eilau into a red slushy. Morbid, I know, but hey, that's war. 
With Davout approaching the Russian left by mid-morning, Napoleon was expecting his best marshal to handle the situation and allow for a reinforcement of the French center and proper thrust forward. But in what Napoleon would later dub the battle's critical moment, before Davout could even attack, Russian General Galitsyn led his cavalry to meet Davout and divert the threat. Now, while Davout's men were able to push back Galitsyn's charge, when they finally arrived on the Russian left flank, they were met with reinforced positions who were now wise to their arrival, and his front lines got completely mauled, suffering nearly 2,000 casualties in just under two hours and forcing them back. With his best marshal now on the defensive, Napoleon knew he needed to make a critical decision, lest Bennington withdraw his forces further east once again. He sent orders to Ajaro's 7th Corps and Saint-Hilaire's 1st Division under Soult's 4th Corps to move to the French right and attack the Russian left in a full frontal assault with one objective, prevent the Russians from retreating. Now, Marshal Ajaro led his men into position, but he woke up extremely sick that morning and was disoriented throughout the battle, even needing help mounting his horse. As the weather worsened and the slew of bodies made marching all the more difficult, Ajaro and Saint-Hilaire moved forward with their men into a complete buzzsaw. And as the snow picked up, Ajaro veered his men off course, and with visibility reduced to only a few feet, they marched left and into the center where all the artillery was concentrated, both for the Russians and for the French. Despite slogging their way through, Ajaro's men were cut down by enemy and friendly fire, and just as his vanguard reached the Russian right, Yes, you heard that correctly. They managed to march right through the entire line of battle. The snow stopped, and a division of Ajaro's rearguard was left in the center, facing nearly 100 enemy guns from only 30 yards away. They were annihilated. At the front, a division from the van was able to break through the Russian line, only to then be surrounded by three Russian divisions and swallowed up whole. Ajaro himself was saved from certain death only by his horse being killed from under him, but he was badly injured and was unable to continue the battle. With little to gain now, Ajaro's corps retreated back to Eilau, chased doggedly by Russian cavalry as they suffered almost unimaginable casualties. Some 930 dead and nearly 4,300 wounded, including Ajaro himself. The regiment known as the 14 Ligne was actually unable to retreat and they had to fight to the last man while losing their eagle standard. All of this was done in just 30 minutes of fighting, an average of about 167 casualties per minute. Ajaro's charge was the definition of a meat grinder, and it was one of the worst disasters of the entire Napoleonic Wars for the French and their emperor. Watching it all unfold in real time, Napoleon now knew that this battle was something different, and that he would be in for his first true test in the art of warfare. Eilau was a true battle of attrition, and its attrition was fierce. Meanwhile, further south, Saint-Hilaire managed to stay on course, but without Ajaro's numbers to assist him, his charge did little damage, and he too was checked. Davout was still trying to stabilize his line and away for further reinforcements from his rearguard. Coupled with this, the French center was quickly disintegrating, and Napoleon was running out of options as well as men. It was here where he called upon Murat to help save the day, and what followed was what can only be described as one of the greatest cavalry charges in history. With the snow falling around noon, Murat, and what can only be described as he and his balls of steel, assembled some 40 squadrons of cavalry across the Grande Armée and began the slow march towards the Russian lines. Despite being unable to employ a full charge assault on the enemy due to the conditions and the fact that the horses themselves were starving and freezing, the pure sight of the sea of men and beasts of burden was enough to make any general shudder. 
Led by Gouchy and followed by General Jean-Joseph Daptoul, the French crashed through the Russian line with seemingly unstoppable momentum, cutting down every Russian in their path. The Alpul's cuirassiers moved on the Russian right, and after Grouchy had penetrated through two Russian divisions, the French were only a few hundred yards away from Benningsen's headquarters at the village of Obkappen. But Benningsen was nowhere to be found, as he had personally rode out to the Prussians under Lestock to hasten their march, as the French were now dangerously close to leaving the Russian front in tatters. However, as Dabpul's men approached Opkoffen, they were soon cut down by a large battery of artillery, and Dabpul himself was killed in the fighting. The French, almost in an instant, lost all the momentum. Murat singled for the retreat of his men, and by 2 p.m. his forces were nearly surrounded by Russians from all sides. Murat himself was nearly killed, but Napoleon decided to send in his reserve Imperial Guard cavalry under Marshal Jean-Baptiste Bessaret to assist. Napoleon's decision to not employ his guard sooner was widely criticized and has been used by some as a major reason why the French did not achieve the decisive victory right then and there. But it's difficult to blame Napoleon completely, as he was hoping to keep them in reserve because he was still anticipating Lestock's force to come to the Russians' rescue. Nevertheless, the Russians now forced his hand, and Napoleon sent some of the finest soldiers in all of Europe to help save one of history's greatest cavalry commanders. When the guard marched forward, their leading colonel shouted, quote, Heads up, by God. Those are bullets, not turds. Cutting down the Russian gunners and creating a gap in the Russian center, Murat and his cavalry would make it back to Eilau to regroup, though with heavy losses, suffering somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 casualties. Never before or since would the French employ such a risky cavalry charge, but overall its mission was a success. The Russian advantage was checked, and the French, relatively speaking given the carnage that lay on the battlefield, regain the momentum. With the Russian advance halted and the French line stabilizing, the Battle of Eilau now swung to the Russian left and Davout's Third Corps. Finally equipped with sufficient troops, Davout began his much-anticipated full assault on the Russian left flank, but the Russians were anticipating this and had hours of preparation as Davout's reserves were slow to join the main force, and when Davout finally pushed forward in his full numbers, the Russians pulled back to the heights of the Kriegerberger, where they had an ample position for a counterattack. But the newly crowned Duke of Auerstedt was not to be deterred, and, supported by Saint-Hilaire's division, he pushed forward and they wore down the Russians after hours of heavy fighting. Despite a last-ditch attempt by Bennington to push the French back at the village of klein Sausgarden to the southeast, French reserve artillery checked the Russians once again, and Davout now had the momentum he had so desperately desired all day. By 3 p.m., his troops had pushed the Russians back and had captured the Kriegerberger, breaking the Russian left and sending them north. Benningsen, who had just returned back to his headquarters, could only watch as a sea of men rushed on his position at Alkoppen and broke through. He was able to cobble together a few units to form a makeshift defensive line in order to stall the French advance, but their forward momentum was too much. After a day of bitter fighting and suffering on an unimaginable scale, it finally looked like the French would secure the decisive victory that they had been craving since Jena and Auerstedt. But then, the Prussians arrived. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Benningsen had sent desperate police to Lestock's 10,000-strong army to come to their aid, but Lestock faced poor roads, I mean, you know, at this point, who didn't, and was being constantly monitored by Marshal Ney's Sixth Corps, who was ordered to prevent the Prussians from linking up with the Russians at all costs. 
But Lestock was determined to relieve Bennington, and with favorable positions and sheer will, the 70-year-old general pushed his way past Ney's corps and by the early afternoon had reached the fringes of the Russian rearguard. By 4 p.m., the Prussian troops, relatively fresh given the buzzsaw the Russians and French had been enduring for the past eight hours or so, met Dabu's Third Corps and began pushing them back. Utterly exhausted from hours of marching and heavy fighting, Davout's men turned and ran with the Prussians hot on their tail. Retreating back on the heights of the Kriegerberger, Davout, with his only intact division, vowed to make his final stand. Ordering his heavy guns to the top of the heights, and helped by poor coordination by the Prussian and Russian field commanders, Davout ordered volley after volley, cutting down scores of Prussian and Russian pursuers. At around 5 p.m., Marshal Ney finally caught up to the action, and with his new threat coming from the north and with darkness approaching, Benningson made his final order of the battle and called off any further attacks. Retreating back to their camp, Benningson, faced with a huge shortage of ammunition and manpower, ordered a withdrawal in the middle of the night. The French had taken the field and the town of Eilau, but at a cost not yet seen in Napoleon's career. And unfortunately for the emperor, it wouldn't be an outlier, but rather a harbinger of what was to come. The Battle of Eilau was the first true check on the aura of invincibility that seemingly surrounded Napoleon. The myth that he could not be challenged on the field of battle was now greatly shaken, and while he did claim victory on the frigid February day, any true observer knew it was anything but. As Marshal Ney famously remarked upon seeing the corpses strewn on the battlefield, quote, what a massacre, and without any result. Indeed, not even Napoleon believed that this kind of attritional warfare could end victoriously for either side. Days after the battle, he sent separate peace offerings to the Prussians, which would restore their natural borders and see the French withdraw from their territory. But the Prussians, wanting to honor their alliance with Russia, refused. The war would drag on through the rest of the winter and the spring, and the decisive victory that Napoleon had been searching for since the fall continued to elude him. Casualties of the Battle of Eilau are difficult to place given the utter chaos and the sheer numbers, but general estimates place the French losses at between 15,000 and 30,000 men, with the Russians and Prussians suffering similar combined numbers. But the French, who were so used to domination over their opponents, suffered mentally as well. Many of their best soldiers, who routed the Prussians at Jena and Auerstedt, now lay dead on the frozen fields of Eilau, their bodies buried in a blanket of snow, thousands not being able to be seen until the spring melt. Indeed, it was said the stench from the deceased could be smelled for months into the spring as the cleanup from the battlefield was almost impossible for the small villages that surrounded it. Eilau would become a reality check not just for Napoleon, but for the elite Grande Armée, and it ushered in a new phase of the Napoleonic Wars. Battles would be won over days, not hours, and armies would be composed of some hundreds, not tens, of thousands of men. But Eilau was not the end. Not by a long shot. Because Napoleon would soon wear down the coalition forces and achieve the decisive victory he had craved for months. And next week, we will indeed finally put a bow on the War of the Fourth Coalition with the momentous Battle of Friedland and the subsequent peace following the Treaty of Tilsit, a treaty which began a partnership that terrified the rest of Europe, a treaty between France and Russia. Russia.